So it's my great pleasure, first of all, to, to thank Leila for her participation today in the launch of our booklet, but also for her participation in the conference itself last May. Really, Leila, we are very grateful to you for your work and for your continued interest in our issues that we work on, and we look forward to hearing what you have to say. It's going to be an important year, not only because it is the 75th anniversary of Israel's independence and of the Nakba, but also because of the nature of the new Israeli government. Um, I don't need to describe the character of this government. It describes itself in its own coalition agreement and in the statements that ministers have made. And I think it's fair to say that, put it mildly, uh, the positions that this new government is going to take, particularly towards the Palestinian issue, but also on issues domestically inside Israel, is going to be something of a challenge, if not a headache, to many governments around the world, in, including in the United Kingdom. So I think that we have quite an important year coming up. It's also going to be a year in which, for Palestinian politics, growing uncertainty over President Abbas's future and what the consequences might be of his departure from the scene. He is getting old, and I think that many will anticipate that at some stage he may leave the political scene, uh, either for health reasons or for political reasons. And there are unfortunately quite a lot of concerns that the transition to his successor may not go as smoothly as we would wish and that there could be further internal violence inside Palestine itself related to, to the succession. There is the unresolved issue of the uh, divisions between Gaza and the West Bank, between Hamas and Fatah. Although the Algerians had um, mediated uh, an accord between them, I'm afraid it seems to be that particular accord seems to be going the way that um, several other previous agreements have done, um, mediated by the Egyptians and others, um, and being honored more in the breach than in the observance. But we could hold out hopes that perhaps if there is some um, foreign pressures that are put on to the Palestinian authorities, that we might see a renewal of Palestinian democracy. Elections, as everyone knows, are long overdue. They were postponed by President Abbas a couple of years ago under the argument that the East Jerusalemites could not participate. But many people think that that was possibly not the real reason why they, they were postponed. But certainly it ought to be the case that all of us who live in democracies and who care for democracies, as Palestinians passionately do, would like to see a renewal of Palestinian democratic legitimacy. As far as the British government is concerned, I'm not sure that it is going to be putting this particular issue at the top of the agenda. The British government has supported the Abraham Accords, which have so far had little to say about the Palestinian issue. And I think that uh, any hopes that we might have had that those accords, um, the establishment of formal diplomatic relations with four um, Arab states would lead to a change in policies towards Palestinians have so far at least been disappointed by it. The 75th anniversary year, and because of the legal challenges that are now coming up, we're going to see that some attention, international attention, will be required whether governments wish it or not. 
And I'm thinking in particular of actions that have been taken by the International Criminal Court, its commission of inquiry into human rights abuses committed by all parties, I should add, uh, in the occupied territories. Been refusing to cooperate with that particular commission of inquiry. And more recently than that, something which is potentially of considerable significance, and that is the um, referral by the UN General Assembly of the legal status of the occupation, and it's quite a broad referral, to the International Court of Justice, the, the, the World Court at The Hague. So that case being heard by the, the, the world is going to be uh, an important one. Uh, it was more than 20 years ago that the ICJ gave an advisory opinion on the um, wall that the West Bank. And I think that unfortunately, um, the, uh, the, new, the new advisory opinion is, is going to be equally significant. I'm afraid people are noticing that my sound is cutting in and out. I do have a recording, uh, I do have a problem with, with my microphone, and I hope that it's going to come back again. Perhaps better because of my um, sound problems that I hand over now to, to John um, to have a discussion with Leila about the issues that came up during our conference. John, over to you. Thank you very much, Andrew. Um, this, this event this evening is to launch the booklet about the, containing the proceedings of the conference, and I commend it to you all. <clears throat> Why did we decide to have a conference entitled Britain's Abandoning Palestine? For the very simple reason that Britain failed its sacred trust of civilization towards the Palestinian people, an obligation that was a legal obligation under Article 22 of the Covenant of the League of Nations. Instead of the well-being, development and independence, which Britain was obliged to ensure for Palestine, it left the Palestinian people in a legal vacuum with chaos, war and dispossession. It carries direct responsibility for this disaster but that little, that responsibility is too little remembered in Britain today. In fact, it would be no exaggeration to say this is a case of amnesia. Maybe we might call it an imperial amnesia, I don't know. In August, three months after our conference, Channel 4 had an excellent documentary on the amnesia about the partition of India. I very much hope something similar will be done by the, who knows, the BBC or Channel 4 or another station that will set out the facts so that people can know what actually happened. It is Britain's duty to acknowledge its responsibility, our British responsibility, and to work now to advance equal rights for all in what was once the mandate of Palestine. These rights include self-determination and mutual security. And it is clear today who has self-determination and security and who does not. Um, in a moment, I'm going to start um, my conversation with Leila. But just before doing that, I'm going to 
tell you a few highlights from the conference. Radha Karmi, who was an eyewitness at the age of six, she was ethnically cleansed from West Jerusalem. And she, as a six-year-old, first realized there was trouble when one morning in January 1948, on Britain's watch, while Britain was still the mandatory power, she suddenly thought that day had come in the middle of the night. And what it was, was the fire from the Semiramis Hotel that had been blown up by the uh, Haganah. So that was a child's introduction. I recommend reading Rada's account because it is a very moving document indeed. Our keynote speaker was Hanan Ashrawi, and one of the things she focused on was the fact that um, we want all the rules of international law to be applied when it comes to Ukraine, but we forget about Palestine. And there is another little similar, and, and when one sees um, the attitude of President Putin, it very often reminds me of the attitudes of the Israeli right wing. I'm afraid what one might say, the mainstream in the Knesset at the moment towards Palestine. And don't forget Putin denies that the Ukrainians are a people. What does that remind you of? Another thing that happened during the conference was that we had a very good presentation from the UN human rights rapporteur, Michael Link. And he showed the connection between Britain's role in Palestine and what happens today, a direct connection. This takes the form of the British emergency defense regulations, which allowed for all kinds of unspeakable um, policies to be conducted without the rule of law. Deportations, collective punishments, um, house demolitions, and so on and so on. And they are now enshrined, they are reenacted, codified, and updated in the 2016 Israeli security law. Towards the end of the conference, we also had an excellent panel of Palestinians. And they talked about the difficulty of being a Palestinian and what it means to be a Palestinian. And one of the most moving things was said by Adam Abdullah, a member of the, of the panel, who I think spoke for all of them when he said, in the UK, you're very welcome to be Palestinian as long as you don't overstep certain red lines, which is, not to be actively and politically engaged and not to act upon this identity that you have. And how do you act upon this identity? By seeking justice, as Andrew has put it, and the Balfour Project puts it, equal rights for all. There was also a very moving talk by Leila, who I'm about to uh, speak to in a minute, in which she talked about her own family and their personal experience, and how about the fact that she is the first Palestinian MP that we know of, uh, sorry, first, first, um, pa pa first MP in the Westminster Parliament of Palestinian heritage uh, that we know of. And ironically, because she is the MP for West Oxford and Abingdon, 
she is the MP for Jericho, which <laughs> those of you who don't know um, Oxford may remember from Inspector Morse. <laughs> of course, there's another Jericho, and I think some of her family still live there today, enduring the occupation. And she said something very interesting in the session with parliamentarians after that, in which she said, every year I introduce another bill for the recognition of Palestine. And I particularly want to impress on this government to not forget their historic obligation to my family, to the people of Palestine in the Balfour Declaration that said it was a land that was for two peoples. It is often forgotten that the Balfour Declaration also said that the rights of the Palestinians should be maintained. And as I pointed out in my own talk at that conference that included their political rights. But now Leila, if, uh, if we can begin to talk, could I begin by asking you, are you going to introduce another bill this year? Calling it's, already been, it's already been introduced and it's going to be debated uh, on March the 17th. I was uh, quick. On St. Patrick's Day, indeed, um, you know, and, and make the comparisons as you will. Um, but we uh, uh, actually were quite quick draw. And I think I may even get time to debate it this year, which I'm quite excited at the prospect of. So we've been preparing for that. We're really looking forward to it. And as I said, the purpose of the bill is to set a, a drumbeat reminder. I mean, Parliament has debated this before. It's voted on it before. Uh, Parliament's will is settled when it comes to Palestine. Parliament wants to recognise Palestine. Um, but I think it's incredibly important to keep that pressure up and to make sure that it isn't gone from the table for those historic uh, obligations. But I have to say, you know, you look across and, and thank you so much, Andrew, for your sort of summary of a little bit of where we are now uh, in the region. I mean, it's dire. Um, and I, I speak very often when I speak about this in the House, I think, well, Frankly, there are people more learned than I. There are historians. I'm a science teacher. You know, what do I know? Um, I All I can bring is my family's experience, my heart, my identity. And and I would, I think, disagree um, with the speaker who said that, you know, we're fine as Palestinians as long as we don't act on that identity. I think it's, I think actually you can and you must and you should, um, because actually there are an incredible number of of. British Palestinians, second, sometimes third generation, but we feel Palestinian too. It is our heritage too. And I am despairing of the idea that we abandon it. So I thank you, uh, the Balfour Project, for continuing to make the case for why the British government needs to simply do what it said it was going to do, to continue to raise the plight of Palestinians on the ground and to continue to advocate and, and thank you for having that wonderful conference and, and for inviting me here today. It's a real pleasure. Not at all. Um, but could I, but surely, <clears throat> don't you think that many politicians, journalists and public figures are scared of talking honestly about the injustices in Palestine today? Yes, bluntly, yes. And so am I, actually, John, to an extent, and I'll tell you why because I get abuse from all sides. My words get twisted. They take things I say, paraphrase them into something that I never actually said, make implications about 
my positions. I've been called not Palestinian enough because I'm only half Palestinian. Um, I am told that I should just sort of stay in my lane and not talk about it at all. I am called an anti-Semite for talking about it full stop. And then I am also told that I'm anti-Palestinian because I stand up for the rights of uh, Israelis too and the Jewish community in the UK. And the thing is, and what I've tried to demonstrate is that you can and you must talk about it. I try and pick my words incredibly carefully. And by picking your words carefully, by not playing on their ground, by not falling into the tropes that they choose and the traps that they put, that actually you can have a robust discussion about the injustices, the human rights abuses, the situation on the ground, the flagrant, brazen way that the Israeli government, especially now, is flouting international law. And you can say all of those things whilst maintaining that very, very important line of, you know, not offending the Jewish population in the UK. And it's entirely possible to do and important to do. But yes, are they scared? Certainly. And when I speak to colleagues of mine who are incredibly sympathetic and behind the scenes, they will say, oh, thank God you're here and thank you for saying things and, you know, but they, they are scared to do it because of what they're going to get on Twitter, what they're going to get in their emails, what they're going to get in their inbox. And I think one of the things that we can all do to help the situation is to encourage MPs to speak out. But also perhaps if, you know, someone does say something to not attack too quickly, to maybe encourage them to talk about it differently, to perhaps uh, give them something easier to talk about rather than go straight for very, very difficult issues that especially the Israeli government like to uh, put as very divisive, apartheid being the probably most prominent recent example. You know, there are other subjects that are much easier to talk about, child detention, for example, that I try and bring also to the fore in the House to help parliamentarians develop that language, develop that knowledge that gives them confidence to be able to talk about the much more difficult issues as well. And it's just so easy with everything else that comes into your inbox from potholes to latest council matters to what's happening in Myanmar and everywhere else. You know, it's, there's so much that comes into an MP's inbox. I don't blame MPs for putting this necessarily on the too complicated, too difficult pile. We do that with a lot of topics, but we can make it easier for them to perhaps dust it off every so often. And if they feel confident about it and if they feel passionately about it as many do when they know the facts then that helps them to be able to speak out. I am convinced that the silent majority in this country is very firmly um, you know of the kind of has exactly the kind of views you have just expressed and I, I think it's very important that I mean very often when saying something I mean, there's an adage I'm very fond of, less is more. Mm. It, you know, you mentioned the use of the term apartheid. It seems to me, though, one also has to call a spade a spade. And I, I don't see how one can get away from the conclusion that in the territories occupied in 1967, um, apart from the Sinai Peninsula, which was returned to Egypt, Israel does, does commit the war crime of apartheid. Yeah, and I think that those who 
un, what we have to appreciate, and I was really struck by this, and actually I've been recently both to Israel, but also to the occupied territories and to Palestine. And, uh, and you mentioned Jericho. I mean, it was very moving because it was the first time I'd spent any time in Jericho afterwards. And I went to the, the Mount of Temptation was where my grandfather went as a child to hide. So in 48, the bombings happened. It was too dangerous. The family up sticks from Jerusalem and went to the Mount of Temptation. They're Greek Orthodox. So they knew people there and they were able to shelter there. And um, he, he wrote his memoirs too. My great-grandfather did uh, Wasif Shahuria and in his footsteps, my grandfather did before he passed away. And in his book, he says, well, I entered that monastery as a Palestinian and I left as a refugee because the assumption was that, you know, they would come and sort of save the day. Um, but the, I'm just, I'm just incredibly concerned that, you know, you talk about language and specificity, you know, you've got to be, you've got to call a spade a spade, but you also have to appreciate that most people just don't have a clue. And I had a Shabbat dinner with an Israeli family and it was lovely. And they were from North London. They'd uh, done Aliyah uh, 15 years ago. Uh, he was an accountant. She now spent her time writing children's books about food banks you know, clearly very uh, socially minded people and lovely, lovely family. And when I asked them, you know, what's your experience of Palestine? What do you understand about the Palestinian situation? I have to say, even living there, they their understanding of the reality on the ground for Palestinians, literally living miles away, was shockingly poor. And then you could apply that to someone who lives in the UK just as well. So yes, call a spade a spade, but also appreciate that you've got to bring people from where they are to where you want them to be. And you have to understand that so many people just don't have basic facts, excuse the cat, it's basic facts about the situation on the ground in Palestine right now. The conclusion I was left with from the two weeks that I spent one week with Lib Dem Friends of Israel and one week with Kabu, very much seeing all sides, speaking to all people. It was very difficult for me, I have to say, <laughs> speaking to some of the people on the Israeli side. I found it quite traumatizing, frankly. Um, but the overarching sense that I had was that many people here are sort of stuck in the Palestine of the 90s. And, and they haven't appreciated how things have moved on since then, how much worse it has got, how much more difficult it is. And that worries me. And so whenever we talk about difficult things, always remember the audience you're talking to. Um, most people, and I'm sure it doesn't apply to the people watching today or speaking today, because we are all very interested and, and very knowledgeable and have a passion and an interest. But when we're trying to make the case, an active case to bring new people on, to want to help this situation, this god-awful, dire situation, then we have to start where they are. I think that's, I, th I think that's got to be right. Um, you've quite recently, you've been to Jerusalem, haven't you? We went, um, so to Jerusalem, we also went, so with Friends of Israel, I went to Tel Aviv and spoke to uh, various people. This was before the election uh, in Israeli politics. I wanted to understand what is the context in which a lot of these decisions are made? They are the occupying force. It's important I understand their psyche. It was fascinating. Um, and then I spent a week there with Medical Aid for Palestinians and Kabu. And there, of course, you know, we did Hebron. We went to a military court. We saw children being tried for throwing stones. Um, 
it was incredibly moving and heart rendering. You know, we went to the hospital with children, children, babies, neonatal units where one child had come in, was born prematurely, had got well, but there was no permit issued from Gaza for the parents to be able to come and get the child. So a, a, a baby literally days old, three weeks old, no parents for the sake of a visa or a permit. I mean, it's just, it was heart-wrenching. I cried in the hospital. Um, it, it's inhumane. It, it's, it's completely inhumane. But most people wouldn't have a clue. And, and, and it has to be seen to be believed, but it also has to be spoken about to be believed. And I think people, when, you know, they see, and I, I even approach those, you know, on the conservative benches who actively make the case in a pro-Israeli way and that, you know, this is making it up. I, I, I'd like to start, and I, I always try and think the best of people. You know, what do they actually know about this? What have they been told and by who? And what do they actually know of the real situation for Palestinians on the ground? And it's fair enough if they've gone and they've seen it and they still have those views and I can robustly debate with them and I think I'd win. But it's a completely different situation if they've never been, if all they're getting are briefings from the Israeli embassy and, and that completely black and white counter narrative, which, which is often put out, um, frankly, some of it is, is just mis and disinformation. And you have to understand that the people saying this stuff, they themselves aren't bad people, they're just getting wrong information. And, and as soon as we lose the humanity from the situation, as soon as we entrench ourselves in the one side or other, we lose the ability to bring people with us. And so that's what I always try and do. Um, so we've got the debate on Palestine statehood on the 17th. I think it's an important time to reflect in the house on this new government, what it has said. You know, it's not just about supporting Palestine. And I think this is the point that is one of the most important points to make. If you believe in the international rule of law, and if you believe in human rights, then you have no choice but to stand up for the rights of Palestinians and to challenge what is going on on the ground. You can do that and at the same time have enormous sympathy from all sides. And it's a dire situation for Israeli citizens who don't want any part in this. I, my heart goes out to those people in Tel Aviv who I met, who are looking at this government, who desperately also want a two-state solution, and thinking to themselves, where is this country going further and further to the right, further and further towards authoritarianism, despite it saying that it's, you know, the only democracy in the Middle East. You know, it, I really feel for them. And so we have to make that distinction. We have to understand that there are many more allies than we might ever imagine in our cause for two states and peace. And our job, my job, in my view, is to find them, nurture them, bring them towards something that they can believe in and try and keep that flame alive. And it's not just me doing it. There are many, many parliamentarians who, as I say, are more erudite than I and who have studied it and are long in the tooth politically on it. And I think what I try and do is bring, you know, that personal experience, that family experience I have, just to give that colour, that flavour, that depth and that history. I was just... Uh, uh, time with you. Sorry. Um, forgive me speaking over you, John. I was going to say to, to Leila, our time with her is short tonight, unfortunately. 
and uh, we need to allow some time for audiences questions also. But I'd like to ask Leila a, a very quick question first, and I hope it doesn't um, require a long answer, which is what do you think are the prospects of breaking down the rather entrenched partisanship that has developed, the rather knee-jerk partisanship on, on both, both sides? Um, do you feel that there is grounds for being able to get to that silent middle ground that, that John spoke about, to be able to have the honest debate about the facts and appeal to British people's sense of fair play and common sense? Yes, I do. I absolutely do. Um, I don't think I'd be here if I was totally devoid of, of hope. And in fact, I'm, I'm a generally glass half full kind of person. Um, but I'll, I'll relay a conversation that I had with, and I wouldn't say who, but it was a prominent pro-Israeli conservative politician who, if people watch these debates, they'd recognize them as they are often on the bench refuting what's coming from the opposition benches. And it does seem to be, you know, primarily, not always, the conservative side that is the pro-Israel side and it's the opposition benches who tend to be, but not exclusively at all, the pro-Palestinian side. Um, and we were sitting over a drink and I was talking about my family's experiences, background, da da da, and the trips that I was taking and trying to get them to understand. And they were genuinely fascinated and interested. They had no clue that Palestinians, for example, were in Jerusalem and thriving before 48. They had no idea that Palestinians, not really. I mean, it was, they're so focused on Israel now that they hadn't really considered what Jerusalem was like before. And so when I was talking about the stories that my great grandfather told of what Jerusalem was before 48 and how, you know, Jews and Arabs lived side by side and went to each other's houses and celebrated each other's festivals and, and loved each other. And actually how that has eroded over time. And actually what we need to do is to rediscover a kindred spirit that we hadn't we've lost, his frame totally shifted and we are going to meet again and we're gonna to continue to talk. He had no idea. So, so yes, I have hope, but we can't get to everyone just sort of individually. But that's what I mean by actually, by bringing that history, bringing that humanity and actually not assuming that people know that, that people on that side understand it completely. And when they're in the pressure of a public space, maybe they, they, they too don't feel confident talking about it. And we have to help them. We have to not dismiss that their minds are changeable. And if, if he could shift his position, perhaps even just privately, slightly, then yes, that silent middle ground who don't feel confident about it, I'm, I'm confident that you know we talk about it more, we, we give them those tools, we give them the language, and they'll be able to talk about it. Well, thank you. I think you put that very well indeed. And as you know, the educational role of helping to uh, disabuse a lot of the ignorance that you referred to is an important part of the Balfour Project's work. It's something within our modest means we really do try to put some, some effort into. But I, I wonder, it's my last question to you, Leila, before we um, open up to our questions from the audience. Um, what do you think that we as a Balfour Project should be focusing on in the coming year? Because we're not a debating society at the end of the day. We are concerned about trying to promote change. It's not an easy political environment in the UK for reasons we don't need to get into now. But would there be certain issues that you think that 
would be important for us to try to highlight? Would yeah, it be I, international, I for example? Yeah, well, I mean, there's how long is a piece of string with this issue? I think there are two that come immediately to mind. First is the makeup of the current Israeli government. As I have to say, I am scared. I am scared for what's going to happen on the ground. A situation that's already incredibly difficult is clearly going to be made worse. Um, Netanyahu seems to be capitulating all over the place, certainly until what he wants to do with the judiciary is done. He's going to keep making concessions, and I don't know what that's going to mean. Um, but I know that, you know, last year was the year where the largest number of Palestinians in a very long time have been killed by Israeli defense forces. And I fear for the lives of all Palestinians there, but especially children um, who are also being uh, caught in that crossfire. I fear for the human rights defenders that are out there. I fear for Palestinian civil society that's being actively, proactively eroded at the moment. And, and I think this is such an important year because I think all of those issues, which by the way, were not under this government, but are going to potentially be accelerated actively, proactively, brazenly by this government. So I think we need to make people aware that if you thought BB was bad, look what we've got now. And, and I think it's very easy for us to do that. I mean, the board of deputies, when Smotrich came to the UK, refused to meet with him you know we sudden our enemies enemy if you like you know and, and actually i wouldn't even call them that that's, that's poor phrasing and I, i'll take that back because we absolutely have to find allies and and what these smotrich and ben gavir and what they stand for is fundamentally un-british it's fundamentally unacceptable to so many people that actually we may find ourselves finding common ground with people we may not have thought we could have found common ground before. And when you find just a, a corner of common ground, that friendship can grow from there. And I think that's a good thing. So I think that could be one. The second, I think is the 75 years, you know, mm -hmm. but it's independence for Israel, but it's Nakba for the Palestinians recognition official recognition of the nakba by the government i think would be an incredible step forward and i will be certainly making the case for that this year but i would also caution against feeding the you know the photographic black and white narratives the one thing that was good for israel is the thing that is terrible for palestine and vice versa it's often true and it's hard to get away from but it is also, that's a very divisive way of looking at the history. And if there is a way of presenting those facts and say, well, yes, it's true that, you know, Israel is happy that it's celebrating 75 years. We understand Rishi Sunak is going to go out there. But I think at the same time, it's equally important that we pressure Rishi Sunak to make uh, an equally in-depth trip to the occupied territories, to Gaza, to see with his own eyes what is happening and what has happened in those 75 years. And to remind him that actually this is a direct consequence of the ambiguity in the Balfour Declaration about political uh, rights for Palestinians, and that that is currently being so eroded with the settlements and everything else, that if he genuinely believes in two states, he needs to be confronted with that. And 
if we can try and remind people that it didn't used to be this way, that this divisiveness, as awful as it is, can, it wasn't always this way and therefore it doesn't have to be this way, always. I, I just, I urge people to try, 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 try to just weave some of that in because the entrenchment, in my view, there's enough of that going on in Israeli and Palestinian society. There's enough of that that's happening anyway in British politics. Uh, I would just urge you can stand up for and speak out on what's happening, but also just add that element of hope, add the element of history, challenge the fact that, you know, for one people to be happy, the other has to be oppressed. We, we do, it doesn't have to be that way. And I will end on a very, I hope, positive note. I, I did come across a number of prominent Israelis who were actively calling for, for example, the Nakba to be taught in Israeli schools so that that education can happen on the ground there and that young people learn that, okay, for us it's independence, but for them it means something else. And with that understanding, maybe will come compassion and maybe will come at least a better sense of why the present looks as it does and why we need to be striving for better. I couldn't agree with you more, Leila, and certainly pressing for the British government, headed by a man of Indian origin, for him to be even-handed in this particular conflict, to be able to go and speak to both peoples, recognizing that there are two peoples, almost exactly the same numbers, sharing the land, but in very different situations of power and of uh, economic and personal circumstances, lacks of personal freedom on the one side, would be so terribly important you know, for them to be able to do that. So I very much hope that that happens and it's something for us all to try to, to campaign for. Now, time is really running out. So I'm going to ask Diana, if she could, to try to select a couple of questions. There have been so many interesting questions and comments coming in. We're, going, we're not going to be able to do justice to them. But Dee, could you do the difficult job of trying to pick a couple? Yeah, so luckily um, you have covered a lot of the themes of the questions that have come up, such as um, topics and themes to focus on when contacting your MP and so forth, sort of easier intros into the, the debate. Um, and also the fear of being labeled as anti-Semitic, um, apartheid, all of those have come up in the question. So, um, but you did cover them, so I'm gonna skip those. Lots of positive comments. Um, I would like to say that we will be sharing the chat box with Leila after the fact. So please do post any comments and questions in there you have for her. And so I will share them with her afterwards because we have time for literally one question. Um, I've got a really good question from Diane Cox in Yorkshire. And she says, um, and we hear this a lot from our supporters, which is why I picked up on this. My MP ignores all my communication about Palestine. How else can I have a voice in parliament? Mm. Yeah, it's tough. Um, and MPs do their correspondence differently. It might not just be you and it might not just be about Palestine. I don't know. Um, in terms of your voice in Parliament, I mean, I always suggest to people, if they're so minded, join a political party that you feel represents your views. Um, and, you know, if, if you've got the ability to, to feed in that way, that's great. But I would say also don't give up on your MP necessarily. Um, it may be that, you know, you just haven't found that topic that 
really sparks them? Do they have an interest that's domestic that you can link to it? A good example, as I said, child detention is is just so obviously wrong um, and an easier in perhaps than some other things that you might contact them about. So don't give up totally. Um, but no, it is it is very difficult. And this is why the Balfour project is so important. This is why Balfour, uh, sorry, the Kabu that I went out with to Palestine with is, is so important. You know, these campaigns in the UK. And, and I think one of the most important things that we as a civil society in the UK can do is to continue to foster and support um, these organizations who are, you know, trying to help develop that narrative and that confidence and, and do that educational piece. Um, there aren't enough of them. Um, and, and certainly if, if, you know, if you were to weigh it in terms of, you know, money and resource going into one narrative versus the other, this one certainly needs uh, more resource. Um, so I'm sure no one uh, here uh, will say don't do this. But, you know, if you want to support Balfour uh, and the Balfour project and if you want to support any of the others, I'm sure they'd be very grateful for whatever support you can give. And again, just thank you for being here because it shows uh, the strength of feeling. Uh, out there and, and the amount of support that there is for, for everything that they talk about. Thank you so much for that. Um, I have a question from Ramsey from Brussels. Um, what this, I suppose, is mainly to John and Andrew, but I'd be really interesting to hear what Leila thinks we can do with this. What effect do you hope this souvenir booklet could have? How maybe should we I should, to our best? Maybe I should try to answer that. I hope, first of all, that it's going to be a place of record. It's important that the record is out there for people who weren't able to follow the conference and to be able to help to educate people about the facts that were spoken about. But I, I think it's also a reminder to people of the way in which we as the Balfour Project can use a document like this following on a successful conference and each of our annual conferences, I think have been able to make some impression on those who were able to follow it at the time, that this is a continual process. Yes, this particular Where conference... Next year, next May. Th this particular oh. conference was about Britain abandoning Palestine and Britain's historic responsibility. And that is something so many people are quite unaware of. There's a lot of sympathy for the Palestinians a lot of feeling for them, a lot of identification with them among the silent majority, as I mentioned. But to realize that Britain was the great power that initiated this mess that we see today is something that people should realize. And that is what the brochure is aimed at educating people about. Sorry, Leila, I cut in on you, I think. No, you didn't at all. No, all right. no, no. Okay. And I, I think I think all those points are, are really important. I think the, the thing about sort of the booklet in physical form and, you know, that that point that it is a record, it is something to refer to. I think it's it's a really pivotal moment, both in the future <clears throat> of Palestine, but also an important moment for this country, too. And it comes in the context of us having a, a reckoning with our colonial past. Um, and we have a colonial past that we need to reckon with in that region too, although it gets quite often not spoken about. Um, I will say though, there is again, huge sympathy uh, when I speak to proponents of the black curriculum, for example, that, that actually Palestine and what happened in Palestine is included in those conversations because fundamentally what it is, is you know, Britain 
for all sorts of geopolitical reasons in the past, causing a mess somewhere, saying goodbye, walking away, and then hoping that no one notices that it was them that caused it. Um, I, I dare say that, that you know we still have a role to play in the region by recognizing Palestine, which is, you know, what, as I've mentioned earlier, one of my main focuses in parliament and also the focus of the Buffalo project, um, that would be huge. Britain recognizing Palestine would be huge, way more significant than when the Swedes did it. And, and we can assume that, you know, with the right diplomatic and political will behind it, with enough parliamentarians making the case for it, um, that actually we would be the first in a domino effect of a number of countries that would. And actually that would probably kickstart a peace process. Um, people talk about, you know, what significance would it make? I mean, I talk about in terms of my identity, in terms of the importance of reigniting hope. It is a hopeless conflict very often, getting even more hopeless. And actually recognizing Palestine would just mean so much to people on the ground trying to have that fight. But actually, I think it would also yield very positive results when it comes to people talk about getting round a negotiating table. Well, there is no table, but perhaps we can start to whittle one together again. And I think this would be an important first step. Giving ground for hope is really a great note to, to end on, Leila. Uh, I'd like to give a very short advertisement for our upcoming conference, which is going to be on the 17th of May, uh, it's a Thursday. And um, no, it's a Wednesday, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm making a mistake about it. But anyway, um, it's going to be on upholding uh, basic human rights. And so human rights for all Israelis and Palestinians and what is being done or not being done to be able to uphold those rights. So I'm going to close by thanking you again, Leila, for your time. And your having me. Thank all our audience for all their great questions and their support also. So really much appreciated. Goodbye, everyone. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much, everyone.